Welcome to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. Uh, I'm blessed for to have Dr. Anika Gurgani here for the second time. Um, unfortunately, this is in different circumstances. Uh, you know, the world has changed drastically since the last time we were uh, having a podcast together. And uh, just to give a sort of a frame of reference and some background info, uh, Dr. Gorgani is a primary care doctor who trained to treat patients in an outpatient setting. And her practice, she was in private practice, she is in private practice in Long Island, um, in a sort of a clinic setting where she sees patients, they come to the office, and you know, if they need to go to a hospital, she doesn't take care of them in the hospital, like a hospitalist or someone will take care of them when they're there. But obviously with what's happened, you know, in the last month and a half or so your clinic is I imagine not operating and um or maybe you'll tell us the details but yeah there was such a shortage of doctors and there's such a need on the front line we're here in Long Island where I think to date we have about 65,000 total cases of uh of COVID patients in total and you know we're we are I would say Nassau and Suffolk County are the second and third or, or third and fourth highest hit counties in, in New York you know mm-hmm Queens and, and Manhattan, you know, taking the forefront here, but it really is like the epicenter and primary care doctors were basically pulled out of clinic type settings to work on the front line. And Dr. Gorgani is one of those brave doctors that's, uh, you know, fighting this fight for us. So thank you. I know you've been working like crazy. This is your only day off. So thank you for, for being here with us. But, you know, I think all my listeners really want to hear what it's like and, you know, just a little particulars of your story. So you just like take us back, you know, to, you know, when this all went down for you and when they told you you need, you need in the hospital. Yeah, no, thanks for having me again. Um, and you're right. Last time we spoke, it was totally a different situation. Um, and you just mentioned like, you know, there's been so many, it's been just a few weeks, but it feels like it's been going on for several months. Like, I feel like we've been in this now for a few months, but it's only been really five, six weeks that we've just been really hit with this. So, um, yeah, so about, so yes, I'm a primary care doctor. I work in a outpatient group practice in Long Island, Suffolk County in Huntington. Um, it's through Mount Sinai. So I work for Mount Sinai doctors and, um, we were busy. We were, but we changed basically to telehealth. So we were doing video chats and telephone visits with our patients and, for about, and this was about the last week of March and the first week of April, which really feels like it's so long ago. Um, we were just doing really like triaging patients over the phone. Like, what are your symptoms? How severe? I had some patients that I was able to get testing for in either an urgent care setting or they went to the hospital and they got tested and they were positive. So I was actually managing a lot of patients, um, outpatient. I actually ended up giving my cell phone number to a lot of my own patients. And the thing about primary care is that you know your patients, you know who they are, and you know, you know, you could trust them with your number, they're not going to abuse it, or and not to say that other patients will, but you feel a little bit more trust with giving your phone number to somebody. So I gave, I used to give them a list of symptoms, and I would tell them, rate them mild, moderate to severe, and text me daily with how severe your symptoms are. So I was doing that for about two full weeks. And then um, I had seen a few patients in the office. We still had patients coming in, but they were like the non, not super acute patients. We would mask them. We would don our PPE in the clinic, Mm -hmm. but we were, those were very limited. And then um, I was working and it was a Thursday, I believe uh, like first, it was like April 5th or 6th, somewhere around then. 
And I just, I got a call. I got a call from my medical director that um, basically I was kind of enlisted and I was being reassigned or he used the word deployed um, to a, a Mount Sinai hospital, which would be South Nassau Hospital. Um, South Nassau Hospital is in Oceanside. It's in like the southern part of Long Island in Nassau County. And uh, there was a huge need for physicians because of this, just the rapid uh, rate of admissions that they were having. ER, um, in the ER, the people that were presenting the, the rate of admissions, the rate of patients going into the ICU. So this need was so dire. The, the physicians were getting tired. Um, everybody was just really being overworked and they just needed um, physicians. And we actually had even one of our PAs come in with us um, so it was, how many of us came? Uh, let's see, I think from my group, three primary care doctors all around like my age, um, a PA, we had a gastroenterologist that came with us, a pulmonologist and two cardiologists. And um, so I think that's what, seven of us or eight of us that came all together and became hospitalists overnight, you know? Um, so just a quick background. I did my res I finished residency just about three years ago, and in the hospital, I, I did my training in the Bronx. So we did a lot of months on the floors. Like I did, I was family medicine resident, but I still did about 16, 17 months on the floors. Very floor heavy. So yes, there was that fear of um, do I will I know what I'm doing, um, but you know things kind of just come back to you and. I think all of us as physicians, we all take step one, step two, step three. We all have to get that knowledge base to become licensed as a medical professional. So I think any of us that are put into that position, you know, we are trained to relearn fast. We are trained to learn medicine so quickly that even, I'm sure, even if you were to come in, you would be, it's just having a good MD that has a good knowledge base that knows how medicine works and can understand medication management and um, really just learn fast. Because not only were we deployed to become like a new profession, like hospitals would be kind of a new profession or in line in my profession, but then we're also being faced with this brand new disease, like completely new, you know? Um, and that was the scary part. That was the part where I was fearful. Like, am I gonna know what I'm doing? Right. And then you just get thrown into it and you're like, I have to learn within a day how to do this. And you learn, you pick it up because there's no other option but to learn. Um, these patients are sick. They're right in front of you and you got to know how to manage, manage them medically within a few hours of just being in the situation. So, you know, I think any physician that has the openness to do that or like the open-mindedness to do that can do it um but of course it's difficult you know you have to relearn a lot and especially in the hospital settings just with fluid management and with you know learning how to do things on a daily basis for one patient it's it's a different world so um you know it was difficult but within a day or two you i just had to be a hospitalist and I couldn't complain. I just had to do it. And I was like, all right, I'm doing this now, you know? Is everyone a COVID patient pretty much in the hospital? Almost everybody. Really? I would say, so our hospital as of the other, uh, so today's what, Sunday? <laughs> I don't even know. Um, 
as of I think Thursday or Friday, we had about, I think it was around 370 admitted patients and between 60 and 70 ICU. Wow. So yeah, and that was, that's a lot because we, I think the hospital capacity itself is like 400. And a few weeks ago, uh, Governor Cuomo wanted all New York, all New York City and New York State hospitals to really just double their capacity, um, going from like gradually from like 50% more to 75% more to 100% more bed capacity. So um, that's what South NASA has been doing and most hospitals have been doing. I mean, one thing that I've just seen in general is because Long Island and New York City has been hit so hard. Um, you mentioned some numbers earlier, but yeah, because it got hit so hard, hospitals are coming together, people are coming together, and kind of just like working with each other, like what are you doing that's working? What are you doing that's working? Or like, how are we gonna increase our beds? What are the other options out there to increase our beds? And, um, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me recently, like, what's it like now? I, you know, the pla we've hit the plateau, are we coming down, all those things. And I wanna get into that conversation as well, because yes, I think the numbers are starting to come down when it comes to rate of admissions, but the severity is the same. And that's what scares me as a physician and somebody that's treating these patients is um, that this, this disease is still as severe as it was as day one, you know? Um, and that's the scary part. But I think that with all the things that we've been seeing, with the changes in management, with constant learning about this disease, um, hospitals are actually getting better protocols and better um, at attacking or treating faster when you when you're when you're assuming that the patient's going to progress faster you hit them hard with the harder medications in the beginning to prevent that cascade of events that can actually lead them to a worse disease right you know it's interesting there are a couple of things that i want to touch on that you said so i was talking to one of my buddies who's he's, a, he's actually a trauma surgeon at uh, montefiore or mm -hmm. Kobe, i think but now he's you know, treating COVID patients, right? checking in with him last week. And, you know, he said, uh, like one of the things that he said to me that really resonated, he said, you know, we're really learning now how to treat these patients. So I was like, you know, I was like, well, what do you mean exactly? He's like, well, we're not so aggressive with the vent settings anymore. Um, you know, again, like putting patients in a prone position rather than a supine position, mm -hmm. like lot, lots of like little tiny like details, which you kind of like, no one knows how to treat this disease really. Right. And like, you know, you learn these tricks of the trade while you're doing it. So yeah, like, you know, you, like you're saying, like, it's evolving for everybody. You may not have been working in the hospital for years, but everyone's like learning how to treat this novel disease. Um, I guess two things I want to ask you. One, That's is, true. one is, did you feel like there was a shortage of PPE? Like, were you like really kind of strapped? And are you still like, you know, in terms of uh, what you need to take, take care of patients safely? So um, that was my first concern when I was being deployed and I actually had called the director at ho the hospital I was going into and he assured me that there was no shortage. And from day one, I have not had a shortage. I'm very blessed that Mount Sinai has actually really been um, at the forefront of getting us PPE. Uh, we get a daily N95 if we, if we need a new one. They try to give us a uh, new N95 as much as possible. And uh, face that includes also face shields and uh, surgical masks to cover N95s, the uh, surgical gowns. Surgical gowns were a little short, I think last week or mid last week, there was um, 
a little bit more conservative use of it. And for example, we would use one surgical gown per floor if you had multiple patients on that floor and you would just really change your gloves or change something else in between. So, it, but if you're working from COVID to COVID patients, then the changing of the gown itself might not necessarily be as needed. It's really about changing the gloves and practicing good hand hygiene in between. Okay, I'm just gonna, sorry, I just wanna cut you off for one second. So just like, sure. So you're getting a new N95 mask like every day, right? But I remember yeah. when I was a resident and we'd have to go in to see a patient who had TB and we'd have to wear N95 masks. It wasn't one per day. It was one yeah. It was one per time entering the room. Yeah. So went into the room, you put on an N95. Now these are like the OSHA standards, right? So yep. went into the room, you put on a mask. If you had to go back to the room three hours later, it's not like you used that same mask. You used a brand yeah. new mask. Those were the standards that were in place. So... I just want to clarify something. Yes, you do have probably, you know, a, a more sufficient supply of PPE than say, you know, a hospital that's not in yeah. or whatever the word is, but this is not the standard that we were trained by. And this is not the standard that was implemented by the Nat, like OSHA and all these folks. And, you know, you know, and, and what just, I, I saw a post which really spoke to me, yeah. where, you know, when these OSHA like inspectors come to the hospital or when they're doing yeah. that and if you're not wearing like a name badge or something, the hospital gets dinged or the facility gets dinged. No, no one has anything to say now about doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists having one N ninety five mask, which is really way below the standard of what's accepted criteria for taking care of these patients. Yeah. Which going from like room to room with COVID patients, that's right. You know, like you're wearing one gown they all have COVID. What about MRSA? What about Pseudomonas? What about yeah. these other uh, hospital-acquired infections that cause these secondary comorbidities in hospitalized patients? You know, yeah. you know. Of course, this is like you know, it's practically wartime medicine. But I think it's important for folks to know because there was an article in the New York Times today about how Mount Sinai, because Warren Buffett flew all these N95 masks in on his private planes, that they had more N95 masks than say like you know a hospital in Brooklyn. That's mm -hmm. that's not fair. Maybe that that's the case. Even so, having that much, you know, financial support behind you and being able to be resourceful and bring all these masks in for the doctors and other staff, PAs, nurses that are taking care of these patients, it's mm -hmm. way less. Than, yeah. You know, I just want to just, sorry, I just want to clarify. No, I, I actually agree with you. I've seen the posts, I've seen the memes, like where is OSHA right now, you know? We, you're exactly right. When we were in residency, if you had a bottle of water that was in your area as a resident, you'd get dinged for it. You know, if you didn't, if you walked out with gloves on, you'd get dinged for it. Um, and you're right also about this is like wartime. Um, unfortunately, we don't have enough PPE for that standard from going room to room or even surgical gowns. We just don't. And there's just too, there's the amount of patients that are coming in and the amount of protection that we have to do for ourselves. Donning and doffing is a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time and energy, actually. I would say like a good 15 to 20% of my day is just sanitizing and it's exhausting. Like I have to wash my hair every single day and I'm not used to doing that. It's exhausting to constantly be changing, donning, doffing appropriately. You have to do it, but it's a lot. So um, yeah, I mean, having an N95 daily for me right now, I feel like if it's, you know, that's a good, as good as it will get right now. And uh, I feel like you just have to stay positive, but I a hundred percent under, I understand what you're saying and I agree with you. Like, where is OSHA? You know, <laughs> like why aren't they're just, it's wartime right now, unfortunately. 
I think it kind of speaks, I'm going on a tangent here, but I think it just kind of speaks to how all these bureaucratic initiatives and when things are great and stuff, how wasteful they really are. Yeah. Obviously, it's not a doctor's or anyone who's working in the hospital's intent to get their patient sick. And every, every, we do everything that we can not to. Yeah. But like, you know, dinging a resident. Because everyone knows she's coming when I was a, when I was a resident. It's like everyone yeah. high alert, like wear your tags, do this, do that. And it, it, yeah. really, it used to infuriate me then, you know. Yeah. It was like so much effort and so much, so many resources were deployed to for like this meaningless bureaucratic initiative. I understand. Yeah. Patient care stuff wasn't really addressed, or you know, all of that money it could have gone to maybe make... patient care, and then there's the then there's the healthcare workers. You know, like the 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 other side of it is like, are we protecting our healthcare workers as much as we should be? Totally. Um, are, if we're giving a new N95, so some hospitals are still getting N95s every four or five days or once a week. I mean, I don't want to. There's a hospital that I recently heard of from a friend, she works there, they have to wear two pairs of gloves all day. And I was just like, how do you do that? You know? Um, so yeah, I mean, just protecting the hospital, hospital workers. And you're right, like preventing what C. diff from one patient to the other, MRSA from one patient to the other. It's not easy to do that with such limited resources. Um, but we, we just have to do what we got to do right now. Totally. And, and I thank you and I commend you and I applaud you for like, yeah. Really, I mean, it's like folks on the front line. I, I almost feel guilty calling myself a doctor because, no, like you know, the, I really have just such an admiration for like you know what what you guys are. And, it's, and you know, it's the doctors. It's also you know, it's the PAs, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the folks that are cleaning the rooms. You Everybody. Know, anyone else who's out there in the world, like working in the grocery store, delivering food. I mean, there's it's amazing. You know, the UPS guy. You know, or the Amazon delivery. I know. Folks are really you know putting themselves out there for the greater good. Okay, a couple of things that I just wanted to ask you, just as you know, like I mentioned, this is kind of like a two-part podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm speaking with you, a doctor on the front line, and I'm actually going to be speaking with a, a COVID scientist and someone who's like an expert in like coronavirus for like the last 20 years and what they're doing. She's actually working with like the Fauci's and stuff of the world to try to figure That's out awesome. how we're going to treat this thing. Um, so from like a treatment aspect, mm -hmm. there, obviously, you know, you're not doing IV uh, Lysol and Clorox as, as our... <laughs> leader has suggested but uh, oh my god did are you guys still using hydroxychloroquine because like there's been a bunch of studies now that have sort of showed that hey you know i don't know how effective it is or you know showing that it's not effective or even dangerous. um and the second thing is are you there's been a lot of stuff in the in the media and also in the medical literature about how a lot of these uh covid19 patients are hypercoagulable and you know young patients are getting strokes and pulmonary emboli and you know other clots in other places is that is that something that you've been noticing as well so it's great questions. Um, and I just had a uh, conversation maybe an hour ago with my medical director about this. So first, your first question about hydroxychloroquine. So yes, so CDC this week came out with uh, basically they're removing, or that's what I've uh, seen is that they, they're not really going with hydroxychloroquine. The Infectious Disease Society still has it on their guidelines for treatment, but that's really based on current studies. So we are still using Plaquenil, or uh, Plaquenil is the, the name for hydroxychloroquine. We're still using it. Um, it's still part of our protocol. And uh, we, you know, so a patient comes in, they look like COVID, they smell like COVID, they haven't been, the swab isn't back yet. You start them on the hydroxychloroquine, could be azithromycin. Um, and we also cover for other community-acquired community pneumonias, if they do have a pneumonia on their chest x-ray, so we'll be using like ceftriaxone as well. 
Um, and now we're using steroids more. I think about, it's been maybe about two weeks since we really implemented the use of steroids uh, because before that there was a controversy about using steroids. So it's such an evolving process and every few days there's a uh, newer anecdotal evidence for using these medications. You know, even if CDC or in the Infectious Disease Society doesn't come out with a guideline itself, we as physicians, we use what we see is working. Now, if you have the patient on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin at the same time, it's kind of hard to see which one's working and which one's not. Um, but, you know, we do see that people in the outpatient setting have been getting these two medications and they do help because azithromycin has been shown to just decrease the inflammation in general. So that's why they're using that more often because azithromycin is traditionally an antibiotic that's used for atypical bacteria. And obviously COVID is not a bacteria, but it does have um, anti-inflammatory properties that is being, uh, that's really helping with this disease. Uh, the steroids, I feel like is really helping. Um, personally, I, when I put patients on a higher dose of solumedrol, which is a steroid, and I keep them on that for a few days, or even just like after about one or two doses, I see that their respiratory response improves. So I feel like that has been helping. And a couple other medications that are, um, in my opinion, from what I've seen, do help are tocilizumab, which is um, a kind of like a, it's a, like an anti-inflammatory medication. When you, when you see the patient is about to go into cytokine storm, so you're seeing that they're rapidly declining, you're seeing those inflammatory markers just go from, I mean, just yesterday, I had a, a young 33-year-old healthy guy come in. Um, he came in on like two days ago. I had his labs done. His inflammatory markers were high, but they weren't very high. He was spiking fevers. Within 12 to like 16 hours, they, not, they, they went quadruple. Like they just shot up. And then we Hit them with hit him with that tocilizumab, and I'm waiting today to find out how he's doing. So I just texted my partner to see how he's doing. I haven't heard back from her yet, but I'm hoping that with that um, medication, his inflammatory response will decline because that's what's really causing the progression uh, to severity. So the other question you asked about uh, the hypercoagulability. And it's absolutely true. What's happening is, so patient comes in, in the hospital setting, you're able to get blood work every day. So you're doing the D-dimers. Now D-dimers is um, a blood test that tells me that this patient is producing like clotting factors and, or is clotting and releasing certain enzymes, that kind of thing for like layman's terms. But you see that on a daily basis, you can see the blood test. And so these are the hospitalized patients that are really moderate to severe disease. So we do anticoagulate them at full dose um, anticoagulation, just as if they have a clot. So we treat them not prophylactically, but we treat them therapeutically. So now what's happening, and this is a, the conversation I had with my medical director of my outpatient practice, is the role that primary care can uh, play in this is because, and that's because we have a lot of patients that have mild disease that are sick at home, that are COVID positive or presumed COVID positive. They have a mild illness. They're doing well at home. You know, 
their stats are probably fine. They're not hypoxic. They're breathing okay. But then they're coming in like a week later and they're coming in with a DVT, a PE, or even a stroke. And a couple of days ago, we had a 41-year-old male that was sick at home with COVID, mild symptoms, and he came in with a stroke. So it's, uh, it's really scary to see that part of it that's happening now because th- if you think about it, the timeline, right? We, this disease kind of started about three, four weeks ago. And people are not throwing these clots two to three weeks later after being after having the onset of their disease. So that's why we're anticoagulating for about a month after the hospitalization. But what about the patients that are not hospitalized, the ones that are at home? So I had that conversation with my director and I actually even um, spoke to one of my colleagues who's a hematologist. And his opinion was that, you know, it's not in the guidelines yet, but I'm like, nothing's in the guidelines yet. You know, we have no guidelines. We're just going, you know, case by case, patient by patient. We're just going with what we're seeing. So um, another issue is I even contacted Quest Diagnostics to see if somebody on the out, like an outpatient could come in for blood work to get that D-dimer test. Um, And unfortunately, right now, Quest is not allowing sick patients to come in for blood work. I know in my clinic, they have like a drive, like you come in, you drive, you can actually, the phlebotomist will come outside to your car and get blood work done. But I don't know how other clinics are doing that yet. So even if we get a D-dimer as an outpatient physician, um, you could really do a risk assessment. Is this patient at risk for clotting or is it risk for bleed? What is, you know, as an individual practitioner, uh, you can decide that. Um, giving a patient anticoagulation for even like two to three weeks, I think it's actually a really good idea. You don't want these 40 year olds coming in with, with stroke, you know, that's, yeah. So it's just a, it's such a huge evolving process and it's just crazy to be a part of it too, you know, to see it every day in front of you. Um, I I can, I honestly, I can't imagine what it's like being in the house. I remember how crazy it was just being an intern with regular, (laughs) you know, and yeah. with the way things are now, I just, I mean, God, I just, I'm grateful that there's doctors like you that are out there and, you know, really taking care of us, you know, yeah. I feel a lot better knowing that you're out there. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. We're going to, all of us are going to put you in our prayers. And, thank you so much. You know, Pray also- for my husband who's been taking care of my kids by himself. we <laughs> there too. You know, uh, you're also doing all this during Ramadan, which I know it's, which just started. So, you know, yeah. bless you for Thank all you. you. And Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Go get some rest. Go see. All right. Your- it's good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Take care. Take, right. care. Okay. Take care. Bye. Okay. So as promised for the second half of this podcast, I am blessed to have Dr. Susan Weiss, who is a professor of biology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Probably one of the few people in the entire world that is an expert on coronaviruses before this happened. I mean, I think the bulk of your research for a long time has been studying coronaviruses. And uh, you know, your expertise is certainly needed now. And you're one of the few places I would say in the world that are actually working with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is what causes COVID-19. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know you must be really busy and uh, your expertise is really gonna, I think, shed a very bright light on a lot of the confusion that folks have. So thank you. Thank you. Well, one thing I want to say is actually quite a lot of people are working on the on SARS-CoV-2 right now. A lot oh, of really? people have rushed in from other fields to uh, see what they could do. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. So that, yeah. that's, that's good for us yeah. lay folk to know. Um, so I guess I'll just dive right in. Um, okay. 
So, you know, and just in terms, just to kind of like really break it down, uh, a lot of my audience are younger folks and, you know, there aren't science experts or aren't doctors. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the coronavirus is an RNA virus. Right. And what, what does that mean? Okay. Um, an RNA virus and a DNA virus and the why, well, we'll start with that, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So everybody has DNA in their, in their genomes, their genetic material. Everybody knows about that. We have 23 pairs of chromosomes, but viruses can have RNA as their genomes instead of DNA. So we have DNA viruses and RNA viruses and many, many familiar viruses are RNA viruses like measles, mumps, flu. Um, Chickenpox is a DNA virus. Um, Coronaviruses are RNA viruses, and that, that just means they have a really long strand of RNA as their, as their genetic material. And they're really kind of simple. They only have about like six or seven or eight genes, depending on the, on the virus. And these, this very small amount of genetic material can do a lot of damage to a cell, obviously. So they basically take over their cell and use the cell's machinery, essentially, right. to reproduce themselves. But, but actually, it's even more interesting than that. that so viruses are not really alive in the sense that they can't produce their own energy. So like bacteria, for example, can, can grow. If, if you give them some nutrients, they can just grow outside of a cell. But a virus on a, on a tabletop, people talk about how long they last. They may last, but they're not growing. They can't grow unless they're inside of a cell. And so once inside of a cell, they use the, um, the, the ability to make proteins and stuff is for, and to make energy comes from the cell, but they have lots of enzymes or, or um, proteins that, are, that they use for replication. That really, that's what the virus has in their genome is, is uh, encoding proteins that allow themselves to replicate. And also, they also have very diabolical proteins that allow them to prevent the host cell from responding to them. Wow. And is yeah. that what makes this one so particularly like bad compared okay. to, you know, I mean, I guess all coronaviruses aren't good, but you know, this one seems to be particularly virulent. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really interesting question. Nobody really knows why. So, so there are human, well, before we knew about SARS and MERS and these really virulent human viruses, we studied um, animal coronaviruses have been around, been described since the thirties, infectious bronchitis virus, a chicken virus. So the chicken, cow, pig, dog, cat, all these species have coronaviruses and some of them pretty bad. Like the cat FIPV is a really bad peritonitis virus of cats. But, and then there are also human cold viruses that were known for a really long time, OC43 and T2NIE. There are some other human viruses that are kind of intermediate in um, causing diseases. They cause croup and pneumonia. But so if you just looked at the genomes of the genetic material of these viruses, you would ha- I think you'd have no clue as to why these, one, these were so bad. It's really, it's really quite a mystery, particularly if you compare this virus, it's called SARS-CoV-2 because it's very much like the SARS virus that, uh, that arose in um, China in 2003, um, but, but it's behaving very differently. And you, could not, you can't really tell that from the genome or from the, from the genetic material. So it's pretty wow. mysterious, yeah. Is that like one of the things that scientists like yourself are working on? I think so, but they're almost intangible. It's like, why does this virus, um, so the big difference between this virus and say SARS or MERS was that when people had SARS, they they were sick. When they were shedding virus and infectious, they looked sick and could be hospitalized. The the scary or the difficult thing about this virus is that it, it seems like people start shedding virus so that they're infectious before you even, before they look sick. And I don't know how, I mean, there must be something genetically in the virus that determines that, but it's kind of difficult. 
figure yeah, the other out. thing that I think with this virus is so confusing is there's just a spectrum of disease. You know, like there's folks like, you know, our silent carriers are yep. shedding the virus are totally fine, never know they even had it. And I think in New York, the, like based on the antibody tests that we're doing, which I don't think are so great, but one in four people were actually testing positive and they may not have had the disease, which is terrifying. And then there's like folks who are, you know, like it's, it's fatal. And now yeah. there's all of these other things that are coming up with it, like, you know, uh, hypercoagulable states where, mm-hmm. where young people who are mm-hmm. asymptomatic are getting strokes. And, you know, know, it's not just a typical respiratory virus. It's like, you know, wreaking havoc on, on the entire body. It's very scary. It's very scary. I, I agree. And um, I guess when I posed that to a friend who's a, a clinician, I'm not a clinician, he said, well, you know, some other viruses have big ranges of, like, for example, West Nile virus is often not a very noticeable or really severe disease, but occasionally it goes to the brain and causes encephalitis. So it's not completely unheard of that viruses would have a, diff- a spectrum of diseases, but this is really extreme. And the other thing that, that we don't really know is like, we have no idea why some people, other than pre-existing conditions, could have two healthy 50-year-olds or 40-year-olds and one might get much more sick than the other. Um, there's this whole question of, does it have to do with the dose of virus, which how much, how much virus did that person get infected with? Did they get infected because they're working with lots of patients that are spewing virus? Or did they just pass by somebody casually get the virus? Right. We don't really know. That's a, right. something really important to figure out, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It does make a lot of sense. You know, sort of that's what things are pointing to, that there is like sort of a dose-dependent um, clinical presentation. But again, is that, no one is knows. That, is it dose-dependent? Do we know that? I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, that's yeah. kind of like one of the presumptions yeah. now, like as to why if someone gets so sick, why healthcare yeah. workers in particular, a lot of them are getting really, really is that Is that true that they do get sicker than I mean, that's on the average? ones you... That, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. don't. I, that's not a fact, but just based on what you read and, you know, like, uh, and, you know, the, I guess you really read about the worst cases, but. I wonder about that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Um, yeah. One of the other things that I think you may be able to help us understand is now there's some reports that are coming out that folks who have been infected can get a reinfection like months later after they've recovered. And initially they were saying that perhaps that's just a reactivation of some latent virus in their system and they weren't able to transmit the disease to other folks. But now like, it seems like there have been a few reports of folks getting it a second time, which is, you know, unusual. Yeah. Does that mean the virus is rapid, rapidly mutating? You and, know, yeah, you know, I've heard uh, stories like that, but are there actual clinical documentation of that kind of stuff? I don't, I'm not sure because first of all, I don't think it's a latent virus because these, these viruses generally, they're like so-called lytic viruses. They they destroy things, they kill things, they move around. They don't, they don't have a, they're not like HIV that they can't integrate into a cell, into a DNA, they can't do that. So I think it's unlikely that they're latent. Um, there's a couple of other possibilities that, um, it, did they really ever go away? I mean, and I don't know how many months it could be because the virus really just started in December, right? So it can't yeah. be that many months. Um, uh, and, um, I mean, there's, there are reports from MERS, which is a, was a, is a similar virus that immunity might wane after a while, but I don't think it would wane that quickly. Um, so I, I think we really have to see the real hard data for this kind of stuff before we know right. what's going on. But it would, like you said, it would be pretty unusual to right away get, I mean, people get colds a lot, like OC43, the human coronavirus, you could get that multiple times. So clearly the, the uh, immunity probably wanes. But I, but I also think if you got reinfected, yeah you'd have some kind of immunity. You'd have like, you get flu every, you could get flu after the flu shot, but you're not as vulnerable as um, like, like right. people, we're, we're all so vulnerable to this virus because nobody has immunity to it. Right. Nobody. 
Yeah, I think that's a really great point. So yeah. there, like, like you, one of the things that I really want to reiterate that you said is a lot of things that you read or even like you hear like, you know, the pundits on CNN or MSNBC or on the news saying like, you know, well, this, even if they're doctors, we don't, doctors don't know even, you know, because we don't know a lot about this virus and the story is kind of changing. So it's really, because, you know, for me, when I was like, I was like, wow, so how's a vaccine going to, when I heard that, yeah. you know, when folks are getting reinfected, I was like, well, that really, how's a vaccine going to really going to work? Because that's what a vaccine does. It basically, you know, makes right. you immune once you're exposed right. to some of the proteins from the virus. Um, so that's, I think that's a great point. Thank you for, for, for raising but I do, that. Yeah, I do think that if a vaccine is the thing we really need. I mean, even if you, like, if you get vaccinated and you get infected, I, I would predict it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be fatal. It wouldn't be terrible. But we'll see. Yeah, no, that, I, yeah. I, I, I agree. I hope so. I hope that's the case. So is that the crux of your research? Is it really on vaccine development? Or like, what, no. what is, or is mm-hmm. it therapy? So, or what are folks really doing that are like full court press on Okay, well, SARS-CoV-2? I can talk about me and I can talk about other people. So I'll just tell you quickly what I do and then I'll tell you what the world does. So my research is really, really basic. So my lab has been interested for many years on, mostly we studied the mouse coronavirus, which is a model virus, which um, causes... Um, hepatitis and, and encephalitis and some strains um, um, pneumonia in mice. And so we can study how the virus and the cells and the host interact, like how the virus is able to prevent the host from responding to it and clearing it out. So it's kind of this battle between virus and host. So that's, that's what I do. And it does have applications in a very long-term way, like some of the, these. Uh, so if you know how the virus and host interact, you can figure out how to intervene. Or that's what we write in all our grant proposals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but, with the, but right now, like even if you look at, um, there must be like 50 different vaccines being developed now, all kinds of different vaccines, and they're in various stages of development. I think there's one vaccine actually in clinical trials now. And that's, uh, that's an RNA vaccine, which is a new kind of vaccine um, in which the, the, you, an RNA um, encoding one of the, so this virus is called, I'm gonna back up a little bit. It's called a coronavirus because it looks like a crown in the, in the electron microscope. And the crown morphology is due to this, what the spike proteins, everyone's probably heard about the spike protein. Mm-hmm. And the spike protein is important because it actually attaches to the host receptor and mediates, helps the virus get into the cell. And so most of the vaccines that are developed are against the spike protein. And um, so there, there are many different ways of making the vaccines. A more conventional way would be to just take virus and either kill the virus and use that as a vaccine or attenuate the virus. That means figure out a way to make it so it, it replicates but doesn't really make someone sick, but it replicates enough to get an immune response. So those are kind of more classic ways of making vaccines like Salk and Sabin polio vaccines. And then um, people started making with recombinant DNA, like just injecting protein, just the spike protein made in, a, in some kind of cell culture or bacterial culture. And then more recent, more, the most up-to-date vaccines are DNA vaccines or RNA vaccines, where either DNA or RNA that will make this, will cause this protein to be expressed inside of the human body um, are used as, to immunize. And so right now, the, the, this RNA vaccine is being tested. And I saw uh, some data where something like 50 different vaccines are being made wow. and tested. So that's, and that seems to be the, what's going to really a vaccine seems to be the, the gold standard for what's going to really help with this virus. Right. So, yeah. So fr- from your understanding, uh, you know, and this, your, yeah. it, although that might be the base, that might be exactly what you're researching, but you obviously have a lot of information and, and knowledge yeah. about it. How long would is would it take, like, for do you think for a vaccine to become available? 
well, I, I, you know, I'm just quoting like Tony Fauci, the NIAID, like really czar of this whole thing. Um, he says a year. And right. I mean, I, I have no, I don't have any real information, but that yeah. sounds, it's not going to happen quickly. Right. Yeah. I think that's kind of what all of us are starting to wrap our head around. It's like a new I reality, so. at least for the next year in terms of social distancing and, you know, all I hope we don't measures. have to do this for a year. I, I hope know, not. I know. But I, but I agree. Until there's a vaccine, there's, you know, we, folks can't really congregate because, you know, folks will get sick. I mean, if we had an antiviral drug, and so that's the other thing, I think there are um, quite a few, maybe seven or eight drugs now in clinical trials. So the idea has been to, quote, repurpose drugs. So drugs from Ebola or drugs from mm -hmm. HIV are being, being tested um, on the virus. And if, if we could get like a miracle drug, um, that would sort of help in the interim. Right. Right. Like, yeah, which also is that that's not a quick fix either. You know, unless there is like a no. what, what kind of virus is Ebola virus? Is that an RNA Ebola virus? Ebola is an well? RNA virus too. It's a different kind of RNA virus. There, well, I don't know. This is a little bit uh, technical, but there are what we call positive strand viruses and negative strand viruses. And um, so coronaviruses are positive strand viruses, which means just to give a little science that when it infects the cell, the actual RNA itself is translated into proteins, right? Right. That's the first step. Whereas a, DNA, a negative strand virus like Ebola, when it gets into a cell, it has its own enzyme right in the virus. And that, that enzyme copies the RNA into an, what we call an, um, a positive strand RNA. And that's the RNA that begins the infection. So they're a little different functionally, but they're all RNA viruses. Gotcha. But they behave pretty differently, right? Like Ebola is not a respiratory virus. It spreads mm. by, uh, by like um, blood and other right. liquids or, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I think this is going to add a lot of clarity to my listeners. Um, I, mean, I certainly learned, I learned a lot. Oh, good. And uh, <laughs> I, I think you, you have a great way of really kind of explaining things and complex things and very easy to understand. I've been fashion. doing a lot so, of that lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, the world needs you. So the world needs you. Yeah. And, you know, there are folks on, you know, and God bless all the folks that are on the front line working in the hospitals, the doctors, yep. the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the folks that just work in the hospital. But we also need folks on the front line behind the scenes like yourself. Yeah, but they're the, he they're the heroes, really. I mean, people dealing with patients, I really admire them a lot. Well, we, they, they all admire you too. So I appreciate yeah. what you're doing. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, all you super genius folks <laughs> will uh, we'll figure out how we can defeat this thing and you know get back to some more normalcy in our lives. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.